your Bibles to Luke chapter 17. We're looking at verses 11 tonight, this morning. Just want to commend you this week for the offering from our missions lunch. Um, Praise God for what he did last week, but I commend you uh, for the $2,000 um, that was raised, and it did not affect the budget, and that's what we were trying to encourage you to do, is to give, not to sacrifice your giving to the budget, but to give what you would give uh, to a restaurant, and I'm so grateful for the 2000 that was raised. The next fifth Sunday will be at the end of December. We will probably not have that one because of the time of the year, plus we want to devote our energies to Lottie Moon that time of the year, but we will have another one at the end of March, so be praying about that. It's, this offering is to help minimize the cost of our missionaries uh, going out of Fisherville. And we just had a group come back from Utah. Uh, Chris and Agnes just got back from Colorado. Uh, they were there with K- Kentucky Disaster Relief. And, in fact, Chris is going back to New York uh, on Friday. And... Then we have another group going to South Africa in the end of this month. So God is at work here, and I praise him for that. Uh, He, through his son Jesus, is making all things new, and we get to benefit uh, from his zeal for his glory. Well, let's pray, and uh, we'll get into our message this morning. Father, thank you for what you are doing to fix the broken things. Thank you for what you're doing to make all things new through your son, Jesus Christ. And we know that the decisive blow has been rendered through his cross and his resurrection from the grave. And now he sits at your right hand and he is ruling and reigning and he is taking dominion. We benefit from that. And Lord, today we look at a text and this text is crucial, we believe, in our own sanctification as Christ's as we come to realize more and more what it means that he has dominion over our lives, including our affections, we pray you would teach us today, rebuke us, train us in righteousness, so that we may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. May we be people of gratitude and thanksgiving. We ask this for the glory of your name. Amen. You know, Hollywood is not normally known as a place of mercy. Or gratitude. And so when you see mercy and gratitude come out of Hollywood, uh, you take note. Typically, your, your value and your status in Hollywood is based on your potential at the box office. And so gratitude and mercy is a very rare thing in Hollywood. But in 2011, Robert Downey Jr., Jr., um, was awarded the Cinematic Award by Hollywood for his contributions to the entertainment industry. And he was allowed to choose the person who would present him at this award show in uh, in Hollywood. Well, the person he chose was quite shocking. Uh, He chose his former co-star, Mel Gibson, to present him. Now, to say that Mel Gibson's reputation has taken a hit over the last few years, is an understatement. Back in 2006, he had a very uh, public DUI charge. Um, He went through a very public infidelity uh, with his wife and then a very public divorce. In 2010, he 
uh, capped it off by being caught on tape berating profanely his girlfriend. Um, That's Mel Gibson over the past few years. And then you couple that with the fact that he has been deemed as an anti-Semitic because of comments that he has made. He was at a low point and Robert Downey Jr. chose him to be his presenter. Now, Robert Downey Jr. himself is no stranger to controversy. Uh, We know that in the 90s, uh, he relapsed time and time again into drugs and alcohol. And through the help of friends, he was able to get sober. Now, Robert Downey Jr. that night gave the reason he had Mel Gibson present him. He said that when he had hit his low point back in the 90s, it was Mel Gibson who reached out to him and gave him a roof and gave him food to eat, food on his table. And then he challenged Hollywood that night to forgive Gibson. He challenged Hollywood to wipe Gibson's slate clean. Do you get the picture? At Gibson's lowest point, Downey was reaching out to him because Downey, at his lowest point, was reached out by Gibson. He'd been shown mercy. And now he was responding to that mercy with love and gratitude. And of course, we know that there is no one-to-one equivalent here between what Downey has done And what the gospel does for us. But it is a picture, isn't it? It's a picture of the kind of response one has who's been graced by another. In other words, thanksgiving and love is a knee-jerk response to mercy. A knee-jerk response to mercy. But here's the lesser to greater question for you this morning. If a flawed and sinful human being like Robert Downey Jr. can be so stirred by the mercy of another flawed and sinful human being like Mel Gibson that it provokes that kind of thanksgiving and that kind of love, how much more should we who have an infinite debt to pay to an infinite holy God, be stirred by what the infinitely holy, infinitely righteous Son of God did for us in paying our sin debt. That's what the point of this text is this morning. Jesus is showing that a true disciple... Now, what is a true disciple? A true disciple is a trophy of grace. A true disciple is someone who has received abundant grace to save. Jesus is saying a true disciple is characterized by thanksgiving. Because thanksgiving is the knee-jerk response to this kind of mercy. Religious people, people who are earning their way before God, people who are doing things to get something from God and not God himself... The Pharisees, if you will, they're not characterized 
by mercy. And that really are characterized by thanksgiving. And that is the connection that this story would have with the previous parable. In the previous parable, he, Jesus ends it with this idea that a person who really understands who they are before God will say, we are just unworthy servants. We've only done what was our duty. And so you have a person who understands they are unworthy before God and all that they have is all of grace, the knee-jerk response will be thanksgiving and love. And that kind of sets the context as we get into our passage. And the first thing we see in this passage is it's indeed a despairing situation that we read. Notice in verse 11. On the way to Jerusalem... He was passing along between Samaria and Galilee. Now, we don't need to miss this. He was on his way to Jerusalem. Luke isn't just giving us facts to appease our historical curiosity. He has already shown us several times that Jesus is on his way. He has set his face towards Jerusalem. The other gospel writers do that as well. And in fact, chapter 13, verse 33 Jesus has said the reason he must go to Jerusalem is to die. He must die. And this reminds us again that Jesus didn't come primarily as a teacher of morals. There's a lot of people who think that Jesus came just to teach us morals and principles to live by. No, the problem is that we cannot live by those morals and satisfy the requirements of God. Jesus didn't come merely as a miracle worker. Yes, he performed true miracles, but those miracles were signposts to something greater. Jesus came to die. That's why the Son of God came. He came to die. So everything he teaches and everything he does by way of the miraculous is intended to point us to what the cross and the resurrection would ultimately achieve. And so he came to die as the Son of God. Uh, Isaiah 53 tells us uh, he was wounded for our transgressions. By his stripes we are healed. And so these miracles point us to what he would achieve ultimately through his cross and his resurrection. Well, notice in verse 12, as he is on his way to Jerusalem, it says he entered a village... And he was met by ten lepers who stood at a distance. Now, we have already seen the leper who was healed in chapter 5. And we saw that the lepers were social outcasts in that day. In fact, they were deemed ceremonially unclean. They were alienated, isolated from the rest of society. Uh, Back in Leviticus 13, it tells us the leprous person shall live alone. His dwelling shall be outside the camp. David, in fact, when he was wanting to curse Joab's house, his family line, here's what he said in 2 Samuel 3. May it never be without a leper. Pretty harsh words. Being a leopard was the worst possible condition you could, uh, you could be in. Uh, it was a disfiguring disease. You had open sores. Uh, you were ceremonially you were religiously, you, you were isolated from society, 
from your family, from any kind of economic possibilities, you were without hope. That's the condition of a leopard. Um, if you were found to be potentially leprous, you would pre- be presented to the priest. Okay? And the priests were kind of like the health inspectors of the day. And if the priest deemed you as leprous, what you would do, he would, you would be isolated. You would have to wear torn clothes that signaled to everyone who you were. They would cover the bottom of your face, I guess, so that they, your, your germs would not um, be passed. And when someone approached you, you, would, you were required by law to cry out, unclean, unclean. Josephus, the great uh, Jewish historian, says that lepers were treated as if they were, in effect, dead men. And so Jesus crosses paths with these ten lepers. Now, we don't know uh, how these lepers had heard about Jesus. Uh, We saw him heal a leper in chapter 5. Maybe they had heard about that healing. Where he just kind of reaches out his hand, touches the leper. You don't touch a leper. Jesus touched him and healed him. Or maybe they had heard about the encounter he had with John the Baptist. Remember chapter 7? When John the Baptist is in prison, he is in prison for preaching. And just like you and I, where we begin to question God, when we go through those kind of things, he sends a messenger back to Jesus. And he said, are you the one who is to come? Because that didn't match John the Baptist's circumstances. Here he is in jail and uh, he's preaching the, the Messiah to come. And here is Jesus and he, he's questioning Jesus. He says, are you the one who's to come? And Jesus tells his messenger, he says, you go back and tell him what you've seen and heard. The blind are able to see, the lame are able to walk, and the leopards are cleansed. Leopards, plural. So maybe these ten lepers had heard about Jesus' cleansing ministry, his purifying ministry with with leopards. And out of that, we see a desperate plea that is provoked from within them. Notice in verse 13. And they lifted up their voices, saying, Jesus, Master, Master, Have mercy on us. You know, desperation has a way of streamlining your priorities, doesn't it? There's a lot of things in our brokenness that bothers us and bugs us that don't bother us and bug us when we are in a desperate place. Desperation has a way of streamlining. It did for them. Here's the one thing these people wanted. These ten lepers wanted. They didn't want a higher paycheck. They didn't even care about a job at this point. You know what they wanted? They wanted mercy. They wanted mercy. They're crying out for mercy. And this is a prayer that Jesus loves to answer. Do you know that there is no cry for mercy in the scriptures that God does not answer? God loves to answer a cry for mercy. But that kind of cry only comes from the desperate place. If you're not crying out for mercy today, it's because you're not desperate. Or perhaps your health and your wealth and your entertainment options have masked your true plight, your true situation. If we're seeing as clearly as the lepers here, 
we will be crying out for mercy as well. These, these, these lepers were crying out from the pit of their souls. How do you know if you're desperate? You can say, yeah, I'm a desperate person. And you hear that cliche bumper sticker uh, you know, statements all the time with people. Yes, we're, we're just sinners saved by grace. We're desperate people. How do you know if you're really sensing your desperation? Well, how does it look like in any other area of life? If you are a, a person uh, who uh, is seeking a job, what do you do? You get educated. You get qualified for a job. You, you, you get your resume together. You, you hit the pavement. You do what it takes to get a job if you're desperate for a job. If you're an athlete and you're desperate, what do you do? You go to the weight room. Uh, when everyone else is sleeping and resting, you're in the weight room. You're on the track. You are running. You're, you're eating a healthy diet. That's what desperate athletes do, okay? Um, if you're a desperate student, what do you do? You go to class. You read your assignments. You write your papers. Everything is streamlined in order for you to do what you need to do as a student. And spiritually, you reveal your desperation by availing yourself to all the means of grace that God in Christ has given you. What are those means of grace? Well, the Bible, for one thing. If you're not a person of the book, you're not desperate. Because this book, this Bible, is supernatural. And is the primary means by which we encounter the living God. So if your Bible is dusty on your bookshelf, or it stays in the, the windshield of your car from week to week, so you can just take it in on Sunday, you're not desperate. If your knees are not skinned from prayer, you're not desperate. All the means of grace that God has given us. And if you are truly desperate spiritually, you will avail yourselves to those means. Corporate worship. This idea that you can be an isolated, me and Jesus Christian is not even compatible with the New Testament. A New Testament Christian is desperate and he or she understands that he, that he needs the people of God to persevere in the faith. Are you desperate? If these things are not true in your life, they're not regular, then you're not, you don't see as clearly as the lepers here do. They were desperate. And out of that desperation, they cry to Jesus for mercy. And what's interesting in verse 14, he gives them a disconcerting command. Now we'll see why it's disconcerting in just a moment. Notice in verse 14, when he saw them, he said to them, go and show yourselves to the priest. And as they went, they were cleansed. Now, why is this disconcerting? Well, in chapter 5, all he did was he reached out to the leper and the leper was here, but healed. But here he just says, go show yourself to the priest. Well, they had already shown themselves to the priest. And the priest had dinged them unclean. The priest had deemed them as leopards and they were required by law to isolate themselves from all civilization. And here Jesus is telling these lepers, go show yourself to the priest. A leper does not show himself to the priest after the priest has already deemed him as diseased. 
That would have been quite presumptuous. He is commanding them to do what only a cured leopard would do. It's a big assumption. And they do it. And they're healed. Now here's the question, here's the point. Do these lepers have faith in Jesus? Yes, they have faith in Jesus. They have faith in Jesus as a miracle worker. But is that sufficient to be saved? Is that sufficient to be saved from your sins? Is that sufficient to be saved from the wrath of God? Just in believing in Jesus as a miracle worker. There are many people across the world who believe in Jesus, but it just may be that what they believe about Jesus is not sufficient. And that brings us to really the heart of this text. Because these ten have much in common. They all have leprosy. They all understand how bad their situation is and they want something to someone to fix it. And they believe Jesus to be the one who can fix their leprosy. And they obey Jesus and they are cured of their leprosy. But that's where the similarity ends. That's where the similarity ends. And that brings us to the only one of the ten who has a doxological, that is a worshipful response. Look in verse 15. Then one of them, not ten, one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back, praising God with a loud voice. Now, we're going to see him do three things in these two verses. And the first thing it says he does, he comes praising God. Jesus was the one who healed him, and he's praising God. Uh, That tells us that this leper knew Jesus was more than just a mere man. Jesus heals him, and he praises God. There's no doubt that that is a subtle... um, proclamation that Jesus is God. He comes passionately praising Him. By the way, whatever provokes your emotions and passions is your God. That thing, that person that provokes your greatest passions is your God. We have a very deceitful way about us. We can deceive ourselves into thinking we're worshiping God when we're actually worshiping an idol. That which provokes your greatest praise is your God. That which takes up most of your time, discretionary time, and your discretionary monies is your God. This man came... Praising God. But notice as well in verse 16. And he fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. Now he was a Samaritan. The second thing he does is he falls at Jesus' feet. So he comes praising God. The second thing he does, he falls at Jesus' feet. This is a picture of humble, loving surrender. This is worship. 
Now, the, the physical posture is not the central thing here. But that physical posture signals that he is bowing to the kingship and the lordship of Jesus. This is what I call doxological duty. What do I mean by doxological duty? Doxological meaning worship. Duty meaning he is Lord. He is Lord of heaven and earth. He is Lord as our creator, our sustainer, our redeemer. We have the duty to bow to his lordship. We have the duty to bow to his kingship. Even if you profess to be an atheist by virtue of the fact that he created you and he sustains you, you have the duty to bow to King Jesus. But only those who've been redeemed will do this doxologically, worshipfully. This man bows to Jesus. And thirdly, notice it says, he gave him thanks. Now that's a very interesting word. Eucharisteo. It's where we get the word Eucharist. Okay, you've heard the term Eucharist. Some traditions call the Lord's table the Eucharist. Just means to give thanks. The verb is used 37 other times in the New Testament. In all 37 times, it's referring to giving thanks to God. What is Luke subtly communicating here? Jesus is more than a man. He's a man, but he is God of very God. This is the Son of God. This is the God-man. He is giving thanks to the Son of God. It's quite telling. And not only that, the end of that verse says, and he was a Samaritan. Weren't the Jews and the Samaritans enemies? Yes, they were. You have never met a race in your world that was more despised than the Samaritans were by the Jews. During the time of the exile, those who kind of remained in the area intermarried with Gentile races. And uh, the Jews felt like their family line was perverted and their religion was perverted. These were the Samaritans. John 4, chapter, or chapter 4, verse 9 tells us that the Jews and the Gentiles had nothing to do with one another. And here you have a Samaritan bowing to King Jesus. What is that signaling to us? Well, if you've been with us on Sunday nights, you know that the programmatic passage in all the Bible, what I mean by programmatic, it sets the program for the rest of the Bible, is Genesis chapter 12. In Genesis chapter 12, God tells Abraham after the judgment on the nations. Chapter 11 at Babel, God says to Abraham, through your seed, all the nations will be blessed. That is saved. What nations? The ones that are under the judgment of God. Israel had that mandate. They failed. They went AWOL just like Adam in the garden. This is the true Israel. This is the true Adam. This is the seed of Abraham blessing the nations. He's indicting the Pharisees, the religious leaders of the day. You are called to be a light to the nation, but you are a stumbling block to the nations. Jesus is the true Israel. And the Samaritan who represents the nations is being saved at his feet. 
Now, at this point, Jesus is going to respond with three questions, rhetorical questions. And these questions are intended to show what God thinks about ingratitude. What God thinks about an ungrateful heart. And in so doing, he is going to declare forgiveness of sins on this Samaritan. It's a declarative forgiveness. Verse 17, notice he said, Then Jesus answered, We're not ten cleansed? It's the first question. We're not ten cleansed? Where are the other nine? Where are the nine? Second question. And then he says in verse 18, Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? Jesus is grieved because only one returned. You know, all of us have an idea of what grieves God. We have a list of things that we think really grieve God. And perhaps many of those things on your list does grieve God. But let's let the Bible determine what really grieves the heart of God. And what he is saying here, Jesus is saying that a lack of gratitude for what God has done for you grieves the heart of God. Now here's the question. Why did only one return back to Jesus? Why didn't the other nine return to Jesus? Well, you don't have to have a PhD to figure this out. Because they had gotten from Jesus what they wanted. They wanted to be healed of leprosy. And they had gotten their healing. But you can be healed of whatever ailment you have... And go to a lost eternity. They had gotten what they wanted. Because they had received from Jesus what they wanted. They went on their way. And this one man shows us the power of the gospel. This one man shows us. It's a a very clear illustration of the power of the gospel because here's the issue. If you and I had the opportunity to speak to the other nine, here's what they would have said for the rest of their lives. We are so glad we met Jesus because he healed us of leprosy. The thing that was different about this Samaritan is this. He would have said, I'm so glad I had leprosy. Because I was able to meet Jesus. Do you see the difference? In the one, Jesus was a means to the end. But with the Samaritan, Jesus was the end. Jesus was his savior. It's evident that they don't have this interest. They had gotten what they wanted from him. They had no desire to worship him. They had no desire to thank him. And I think that that is very epidemic in churches today. And you can see it by the prayer list. We should pray for material and physical things. The the list should be filled with health concerns. 
the list should be filled with material and temporal issues because Scripture says to cast all your cares upon Him. We should pray for these things. God help us if we're a church that don't pray for these things. But where are the names for the lost on the prayer list? Recently, I saw that Jose and Vinny had a, a, a prayer concern for a, a lost friend. And that blessed my heart. When our prayers are focused on temporal and health issues alone, yes, we make petitions, but there's no praise. There's no concern for the, the lostness of humanity. My fear is that Jesus would link us with the nine, not with the one. And these nine were not saved. They weren't saved. We're going to see that in just a moment. Yes, they made intercessions. They made petitions, but they did not praise. Their, their affections were set on the here and now. Their affections were not set on Jesus. And what Jesus is saying here is ingratitude is a big deal. It is a big deal. Ingratitude says that God owes us something. We don't owe Him anything. And this is the exact opposite of reality, which makes ingratitude one of the most heinous of sins. In fact, in Romans 1, when Paul is describing the perversity of lost humanity, he says, although they knew God as God, they did not glorify Him as God, nor were they thankful. Isn't that interesting? There's a lot of ways I would describe the perversity of humanity, sinful humanity, but one of the ways he describes them in Romans 1.21 is the fact that they're ungrateful. They're ungrateful to God. He says this very the same thing in 2 Timothy 3. He said, realize this, that in the last days there will be terrible times. And then he gives an 18 item list of things that describe the last days. One of those, people will be ungrateful. Note this gratitude modeled by the Samaritan was more than just a man being courteous. There's a place for that. Uh, There is a place for being courteous and thanking people for what they have done for you. This isn't the kind of gratitude modeled by this Samaritan. The kind of gratitude modeled by this Samaritan is a man who has been so melted by mercy and grace that his knee-jerk response is worship. He can't help himself. It flows out of him. That's the kind of gratitude we're seeing here. And that will be our knee-jerk response if we truly recognize that Our situation, apart from saving grace, is more dire and severe than that of a leper. It's more dire because we're dealing with eternal issues, not just temporal issues. These lepers had their leprosy healed, but they weren't saved. Well, with this gratitude and this worship for this man, we also see related to this was his saving faith. Notice in verse 19 as we close this out. And he said to him, rise and go your way. Your faith has made you well. I don't like that translation. The verb there is sozo. Uh, 
in the ESV, in the NAS, I didn't check all translations. It says, your faith has made you well. You may see a footnote, though. And in the footnote, it says, your faith has saved you. That's a better translation because he's distinguishing this from mere healing that we saw in verse 15 and cleansing, verse 14. In fact, the word sozo typically means salvation from sin, salvation from the wrath of God. He says, your faith as expressed by your worship, your praise, your gratitude has saved you. Okay? In other words, he is distinguishing this man from the other nine. These other nine had faith in Jesus. But the faith they had in Jesus was not sufficient. They saw him as a means to an end, not the end itself. That's idolatry. This man had saving faith. He had been alienated from civilization, isolated, which depicted his spiritual state. And now he is face to face with God. He's a foreigner. The word foreigner was written on the outer precincts of the temple. The Gentiles, the foreigners, were not allowed to go in the inner precincts. Only the Jews could go in there. And here this foreigner is face to face with the Holy of Holies himself. And he looks at him and he says, Your faith has saved you, has made you well. You know what's interesting as well with this emphasis on the foreigner? For the rest of Luke, not one insider will be saved. Who are the insiders? The religious people. It's hard for a religious person to be saved. Why? Because they actually think their religious activity matters to God. They hide behind it. They hide behind their their acts, their works, their righteous deeds. And they don't realize that their righteous deeds are filthy rags to God. For the rest of Luke, the ones who were saved are the outcasts, the outsiders, who realize they have no props, they have no crutches. They come desperate. And as as a result, they come praising Him. They come grateful to Him. Grace comes down and gratitude goes up. And generosity flows out. That is always the order. Grace comes down, gratitude goes up, generosity flows out. Spurgeon, I love this story, was once sharing the gospel with this lady. And as he continues on describing what God has done for sinners in Jesus Christ, this woman began to understand and get it. And she looked at Spurgeon and she said, Mr. Spurgeon, if Christ saves me, he will never hear the end of it. Isn't that a good word? That was the one. That was the one leper who got it. Christ had saved him and he was not going to let Jesus hear the end of it. Is that you? Is that you? Remember why Luke is writing. He's writing to Theophilus. Theophilus is a lot like us. Theophilus was a Gentile. Most of us in here are Gentiles. 
Theophilus was a Gentile who had been converted to Christ. And life was difficult living the Christian life in the world he was in. He was probably a, a high up in the Roman government because he's called most excellent Theophilus. Elsewhere in Luke, when he describes someone as most excellent, he's describing a high up in the Roman government. And in the Roman government, if you are one of the higher ups, to confess Jesus as Lord is going to perhaps be your head. And Jesus is, or Luke is writing so that Theophilus would understand and so that Fisherville would understand that Jesus is worthy so that we will persevere and suffer for him, so that we will worship him, so that all of our being, including our affections, will come under his lordship. Is that where your affections are today? Are you grateful for what God has done for you in Jesus? If you're not, that is a very, very dangerous place. My fear is that Jesus would identify you with the nine. Not with the one. The nine represent religious people who aren't grateful. The one represents a person who's been stripped of everything and been opened up for the mercy of God in Jesus. And if that's where you are today, won't you humble yourself? Quit hiding behind church attendance. Quit hiding behind activities in the church and come to Jesus as you are. And he says, he will say to you, your faith has made you well. Your faith has saved you. And if you're a Christian here today and you realize, I'm not walking in gratitude. And the reason I know that is because I grumble, I complain, I slander, I gossip. My mouth betrays my heart. Why don't you come today and be renewed? Jesus is telling us the mark of a disciple is a grateful heart. Let's pray.